Father in heaven, we are in need of, of your word this morning. We're in need of, of rest that comes from knowing you, what you've done for us in Jesus, the rest you provide for all who turn to Christ. Lord, we have faced temptation in so many ways this week, some temptations that we're aware of, some temptation by your grace that you gave us victory in, and uh, far too often temptations that we gave into, Lord. Uh, Lord we, we pray that you'd be with us this morning uh, to soften our hearts, to hear your word, to receive your word, to humble us, Lord, uh, to convict us of sin in our lives, to encourage us by pointing us to Jesus, the one who's full of righteousness, full of grace, who reigns on the throne in heaven this morning, ministering to us as a church. May we look to him this morning. So I pray you'd help me as I preach. Help me to say things that are true and faithful and helpful and that point to your son Jesus. Let's call of that in his name. Amen. Well, this week the, the washing machine went out at our house. We called up the repair company and they, they sent out a repairman. And uh, usually that's a good opportunity for me to be able to talk to people in the community. Sometimes repair people don't want to talk that much. Other times they do. Uh, this gentleman walked up and, and he immediately told me that his English was not too good, which his English actually was fine. A lot of times folks from other countries will say that as a disclaimer. And oftentimes English is very good. I'm just continuing to practice that. And anyways, uh, I asked him where he was from. and He told me he was from the Ukraine. And as he worked on my washing machine, I got to ask him some questions about being from the Ukraine and how long he'd been over here and how it was that he got here. And you can imagine, I had questions for him about just what, what he experienced from the war that is still going on there in that land. And he shared with me that when the war began, how he got his wife and his two young children out of the country and took them over to the border at Poland. And he was able to get them across, but he could not leave the country and had to return back to his city. And he told me about his city and how much he missed his city. He was from Odessa, which he told me was a, a beautiful place there on the Black Sea. And he said, you know, as time went on, he said things began to feel a little bit normal there in Odessa. He said there was no Russian occupying soldiers in his city, so there wasn't like a visible presence of the enemy there every day. And he said often for weeks at a time, it might even feel normal. And the sun would rise, and some would set over Odessa, beautiful place there. Uh, though he missed his wife and his kids, there were still family members there, friends there. He said a lot of things felt normal. But then after about a few weeks, things could, could drastically change. Missiles would be raining down on their city. They're fired from Russia. He said he was reminded, you know, we're constantly at war. And he said he had to make a choice whether he would stay there or whether he'd go to be with his wife and his children. I think he made the right choice. He left the country, ended up coming over here to be with them. But with the sermon on my mind about temptation, I thought about his story and thought about how that relates to and even illustrates temptation. You and I, whether we recognize it or not Christian, we're in a spiritual battle. We have an enemy that we, we can't see, and then every now and again we get knocked off our feet and reminded of his vicious attacks on us regularly to tempt us to not trust God and not to obey His Word. And I wonder how aware you are, Christian, that you're in a spiritual battle. We live in a beautiful place. We're in a beautiful city. It can be easy to, to fail to recognize that we're in a dangerous situation living in this present world, a, a world system that opposes God and His glory. That we're told that the devil is roaming around like a lion, seeking to 
devour. And temptation that we face regularly, it reminds us that we're in a battle. But I hope this morning, Christian, you're also reminded in temptation, we have a great Savior that we can look to. We can find confidence in Him. He ministers to us regularly. He he conquered Satan, and we'll see this morning, in temptation, ultimately leading the way for him to conquer Satan by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And we meet on Sunday mornings praising God for raising Jesus from the dead, resting in what Christ has done for us. This morning, as we look in the Gospel of Luke, we see a genealogy and we see an account of Jesus being tempted by the devil. And both of these accounts help us understand more of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it's my prayer this morning that we find confidence and hope as Christians as we face temptation. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verse 23 is where we're going to start. Uh, If you're not already there, turn there with me. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, take that pew Bible Open it to page 859, 859, and uh, you're welcome to use that this morning and take it home with you. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you as a gift. And thank you so much, Christopher, for standing in my place as a substitute, reading that genealogy so that I don't have to suffer through that. Thank you, brother, for your labors. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to give us the main idea up front. If you're taking notes, the main idea of these passages, Jesus came as truly man and truly God to represent and redeem us. One more time. Jesus came as truly man and truly God to represent us, to represent and redeem us. Now, before Luke enters into an account of the public ministry of Jesus, again, that's where we're going very quickly. This isn't a biography. It's a gospel And Luke makes his way very quickly to the cross and to the empty tomb. And before we get to the account of the public ministry of Jesus, which we see in the second half of chapter 4, there's a few scenes that Luke covers. At the end of chapter 3, we saw last week the baptism of Jesus, one place there of preparation for his public ministry. And then this morning we see this genealogy of the ancestral line of Jesus. That's there to help us know, the reader know who Jesus is. And then finally, in the beginning of chapter 4, we see an account of Jesus being tempted by the devil. And all of these scenes show us that Jesus is the only one qualified to be the Savior of the world. The genealogy tells us that, and the temptation account helps us know Jesus is the only one qualified to save you from your sins. You see, the gospel is good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do. At the baptism of Jesus, we we heard, you are my beloved son, we read rather, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the son of God. That's where we left off last week. Here we see a genealogy. He's also the son of Adam. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. So as we think about this this morning, our, our outline, I want to break it up into two parts. First, in verses, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, we see Jesus is truly man who represented us. Jesus is truly man who represented us. Now, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in chapter 4, uh, but we're not going to skip over this genealogy 
Uh, you, you may look at this at first sight and think, man, these are a lot of hard to pronounce and even obscure names. If we get honest, a lot of times in our Bible reading, we kind of zip right through that. Well, it's the benefit of expositional preaching. We're going to take some time this morning to consider what's going on here with this genealogy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching. And so we want to consider this morning, why is this here? Well, what is Luke trying to communicate through this genealogy? And as I just mentioned, this genealogy has a teaching function to it. It traces Jesus's ancestral lines. So it's not just of historical significance, but there's a theological significance contained here. So the names listed here certainly tell a story. They emphasize something very critical about who Jesus is. This genealogy also helps us understand he's truly a man. He's a descendant of Adam, like you and me. Well, verse 23, we read that Jesus began his ministry at 30 years of age. So we've kind of gone pretty quickly. Jesus at 12, left behind there in, in the temple. And here we are, Jesus at 30 years of age at his baptism and then beginning this genealogy. Now, for the people of Israel, uh, this was a customary age of beginning ministry as a prophet or a priest. Uh, king David was 30 years old when he began his reign as king. And then in verse 23, the first name listed after Jesus, we read, the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, which affirms the virgin birth. Luke's already presented this in great detail here in the gospel. Joseph was Jesus's adopted father here on earth, meaning that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke contain genealogies of Jesus, and Luke gives us a bit of a different family tree than what we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Luke begins with Jesus and descends backwards all the way to Adam and then to God. A different direction is what we see in the Gospel of, of Matthew and what he does. He moves forward through Abraham to Joseph. So we're seeing different directions and, and really a, a different purpose. And, and Luke offers a longer list of names, different names really from, from Heli at the end of verse 23 all the way down to verse 31. Luke traces through Nathan, the son of David, where Matthew traces through David's son, King Solomon. Now, there are different explanations amongst Bible scholars for these different genealogies. Some suggest that, that Luke traces through Mary. I mean, after all, Jesus' biological line goes through Mary and not through Joseph. And they were waiting for the seed of the woman to come, who would come and defeat the serpent. Uh, there, there are others that, that would suggest that Matthew gives a legal and royal line of descent from King David, where Luke gives the actual physical line of descent. Whatever the reason for the differences may be, it's clear that each genealogy has a different purpose, and they're writing to different audiences. Matthew's focus was to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and David. His purpose was to show that Jesus is qualified to be the king of Israel. Now, Luke has a different focus. To show Gentiles, the, the nations, those outside of Israel, that Jesus associates with all of humanity as the son of Adam. So the big picture of why this genealogy is here, though, is to show God makes promises and he keeps them. 
Like Matthew, Luke connects Jesus to the line of David. There at the end of verse 31, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that a king would be established on David's throne forever. Look at the end of verse 33 and into verse 34. Jesus is a descendant of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? That he would be the father of many nations. That in him all the nations, all the families of earth would be blessed. And through Jesus, God's promise to Abraham has been secured. Jesus came to redeem people from every nation. He came to die on the cross to save, to offer forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth, to as many as would repent and believe in him. God makes promises, and he always keeps his word to his people. That's what we're seeing of theological significance here in this genealogy. But notice that Luke keeps on going all the way back to Adam. And his link is clear. Jesus came not only to save Israel, but he came to save the nations. Now, everyone in this room is related. Now, we've got people in this room from all over the place. You may wonder, how are we related? All over the place in the United States of America. Uh, Many different countries represented in this room. We have people in this room from Mexico, members of our church, from the, the Dominican Republic, from Vietnam, from China, from Belgium, from Germany, from Scotland, from Northern Ireland, from different parts of, of Africa. And we're all related in Adam. Every single human being descended from him. And Luke makes it clear here, Jesus did too. He's truly a man. The theological significance of this genealogy, and consider again the placement in the gospel of Luke. So we see God's affirmation at the baptism of Jesus back in verse 22, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is the son of God, there it is baptism. The very next verse in verse 23 begins to trace that Jesus all the way down is the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, one important part of this genealogy is that Adam is listed here as the son of God, and that shows the divine origin of the human race. Adam was not born like you and I were. He was created by God, fashioned out of the dust. We see the divine origin of humanity here with Adam as the first human being created by God in his likeness, in his image, just like we see presented in Genesis 1 and 2. But Adam is not the son of God in the same way that Jesus is, because there was a time when Adam did not exist. Jesus, the Son of God, has always existed. Long before that day in Bethlehem that he was born, just a little over 2,000 years ago, he always existed in eternity past, the eternal Son of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sent down from heaven to earth to be born of a woman to come and redeem us from our sins. The significance of this is that God promised a rescuer would come from Adam and Eve. We thought about this in our study in Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, from that moment on, when this promised one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, of Satan, the rest of the story of the Bible is anticipating God fulfilling this promise. Sending one who would come 
and defeat Satan and overthrow his reign here on earth. And Luke declares in this genealogy, he's come. His name is Jesus, the one who will have victory over Satan, uh, the serpent. He's here. His name is Jesus. Jesus became a man to represent us in the same way that Adam represented us back in the Garden of Eden. And where Adam failed, Luke shows us Jesus was victorious. He's the son of Adam who's come to represent you and me as sinners. Yet Jesus enters as the true and better Adam who came to save, as we sang this morning, the hellbound man. Jesus is truly man. That's what this genealogy highlights. He's indeed a, a son of Adam. He's going to represent humanity just like Adam did. Adam, though, he sinned in the garden. That led to death coming to all of humanity. It led to you and I being born under the condition of sin. Through Adam came sin and death. Through Christ comes righteousness and life. Well, next we see in the account of Jesus' temptation, we're going to spend most of our time here, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, Jesus is truly God who redeemed us. Jesus is truly God who redeemed us. After Luke mentions Adam at the end of chapter 3, it's no mistake that we're thrust right into Jesus' temptation here in chapter 4. And what Luke's doing is he's framing Jesus as the, the true and better Adam who succeeded where Adam failed. In verse 1, we read that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Holy Spirit. You may wonder, well, what's the significance of that? If you're a Christian here this morning, you're full of the Holy Spirit, the moment of conversion, that you first repented and believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell inside of you, and He is leading you and guiding you and guarding you this morning. Well, remember, at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, it displayed the unique relationship that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, has with the Holy Spirit. Everything he does, everything he thinks, everything he says, guided by the Holy Spirit of God, including this trip into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by the devil. That helps us know that everything we read here in the Gospel of Luke, particularly in these next verses, they weren't by accident. It's not like God was surprised that this happened to Jesus. This rather was a divine appointment. Everything that takes place here in this temptation ordered under the sovereign arrangement of God, completely under His control, helping us know the Spirit was at work for the glory of God and for good, and at the same time, the devil was at work for what is wrong and what is evil and dishonoring to God. Now, the wilderness was the place that Israel wandered for 40 years, and there is an intentional connection made here. Just as Israel wandered in the wilderness, it was tempted for 40 years. Here in Luke 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 what? Days. There's a connection here. Israel wandered for 40 years. In their wandering, they're hungry. There's not an overwhelming and abundant supply of food there in the wilderness. They had to rely on God to send manna from heaven to feed them. And here's Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, hungry, and we're told, having eaten nothing. And notice that Jesus is tempted directly by the devil, by Satan. 
Everyone in the Gospel of Luke is real, including Satan. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you have to understand that the Bible presents Satan is real. This isn't just like a story made up. So it would make no sense in a genre to switch from history to kind of like a a myth or some symbolism. Rather, Satan is a, a real spiritual force of darkness and evil. A fallen angel disobeyed God and rebelled against his authority. He roams the earth now. He's real. His forces seeking to enslave, seeking to attack churches and Christians. He is indeed the tempter. This is the second time in the Bible that we read of a human being coming face to face with the devil and speaking with him. You know when the first time was? In the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. They came face to face with the devil in the form of a a serpent as he tempted them. And so Luke gives us an account here. He gives us details of, of three of those temptations that took place during those 40 days. And the main focus here is that Satan offers Jesus the same thing that he did, Adam and and Eve. If you follow the order a little bit, you see here the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life being offered to Jesus. The same temptations that he presented the first time to humanity there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and with Eve. Perhaps this is why Luke even mentions them in this order. Now, Adam failed in the garden. He and Eve got kicked out of the garden, banished into the wilderness. And Christ came truly as a man and truly as God to redeem what was lost. And he started by going out into the wilderness. Now, something that's important to understand here in Jesus' temptation is that Jesus not only remained sinless in these temptations, but I would affirm that he was incapable of sinning. He's truly God. He's incapable of of sinning. This doctrine is referred to as the impeccability of Christ, meaning that Christ was sinless and he was unable to sin. In 1 John 1, verse 5, we read, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is truly God. There is no darkness in him, no potential for sin and darkness in Jesus, the God-man. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging in his holy character. Jesus always has been, always is, always was holy, with no potential to be anything but holy. So you may wonder, all right, hold up. If Christ was incapable of sinning, I mean, what was this? Just kind of like a walkthrough practice? It wasn't like the real game? I mean, if he didn't have any potential of losing the game here, was it really a contest? How was this genuine temptation? And that's a normal and a good question. It's one we asked in our staff meeting this week as we thought about this passage. Let me give you my best attempt to answer this question. We've got to think about temptation. Some temptations are from within, from the sinful flesh. We face those regularly, lusts of the flesh that creep up, the desire we see around us to have things that God has forbidden. And some temptations are from without, from the world, from the devil, from outside of us. What we read here in Luke chapter 4 is that Jesus was tempted from without, not from within. As Christians, you and I, we experience the sinful lusts of the flesh. We thought about that in the book of Galatians, that there's this war waging with the spirit inside of us 
that we're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yet Christ never knew temptations from inside of him, that is, in sinful flesh. Here we see in Luke chapter 4, the temptation coming from outside of him, the devil. That's real temptation. That's not fake, right? That's part of his suffering, that he condescended. Jesus wasn't being tempted by the devil in eternity past. That happened when he condescended and came down to earth and willingly took on the form of a human being. He subjected himself to that type of suffering, the type of suffering, Christian, that you face every day. Most every moment of our days tempted to sin against the God who's loved us and saved us in Jesus Christ, tempted to rebel against his authority, the way that we are harassed and bothered so regularly by temptation, Jesus willingly came and subjected himself to temptation from the devil himself. One scholar put it like this, Christ's inability to sin does not make his temptations less genuine. The army that cannot be conquered can still be attacked. That's what we see happening here in this scene. Jesus was truly a man able to be tempted in this way, yet this temptation was from outside of him. So let's keep that perspective in mind as we consider these three temptations in light of Christ's victory. The first temptation we see here starting in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. It's a temptation here of provision. The, The lust of the flesh we see here. Now, Jesus was being tempted to use his power as one truly God to end his moment of earthly suffering there in the wilderness. Jesus came truly as a man, so he ate just like you and I did. He gets hungry just like, he got hungry rather, just like you and I do. He experienced real pain in his life. Not eating for 40 days, painful, difficult situation to be in. And Satan shows up and mingled in here with this temptation. He's questioning God's word. In Luke chapter 2, at the baptism of of Jesus, rather chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, God said audibly, you are my beloved son. And way back in the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve with, did God really say? Questioning the word of God. I think he's doing the same thing here. Are you really the son of God? Almost as if saying, prove it. If you're the son of God, why should you suffer? If you're the son of God, why should you be hungry for even a moment? Uh, Turn this stone over here into bread if you're really the son of God and eat. You don't need to suffer pain. You're the son of God. The devil's attack on him was to tell him to supply his own need rather than to wait for God to provide it. The spirit would eventually lead him out of the wilderness, lead him back to eating. This is all under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Rather than wait for the spirit, just go ahead right now and end your suffering. Lay aside your dependence on God and His Spirit. I wonder what ways, Christian, you're tempted to lay aside your dependence on God and His Spirit. We trust God for forgiveness of sins and salvation, but how often do we struggle to trust Him in our finances? How often do we struggle to trust Him when we're looking at sending kids off to college. I get overwhelmed with that. Nobody told me how much braces would cost for every, all four kids and saving up for college. And that can get overwhelming when you start to look at your budget and what's coming in. How do you provide for all these things? It gets overwhelming. 
As Christians, we have right orthodoxy. We can, we can trust that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And then far too often, we struggle to trust God for our daily bread, those things that we need regularly. And Satan comes at us in this way. Lay aside your dependence on God. Trust on yourself. Work for what you got. Take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. Tempting you with lies regularly. Now, Jesus surely could have commanded the stone to become bread. That wasn't too hard for the one who walked on water, the one who turned water into wine. He could have used one word or with one touch turned that stone into bread and nourished himself. But notice that the only response recorded of Jesus is him responding to this temptation by quoting the Word of God, by quoting Scripture. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes what we read earlier from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. If man does not live by bread alone, how is it that man lives? Well, by the Word of God. We read that in verse 3. It says there at the end, man does not live by bread alone in Deuteronomy 8, 3, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What's more precious than food? God's Word and His will. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that His food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to finish His work. Man must live by the Word of God. When Israel was wandering and hungry in the wilderness, God let them go hungry. Not because He didn't care for them, but rather that He might provide for them manna from heaven to teach them to trust Him. And for Israel, the, the wilderness wandering was aimed at revealing whether God's people in their hearts would submit to Him and trust Him. And how long would they walk in obedience to His commandments and trust? Well, they failed to do that repeatedly in the wilderness, yet Jesus in the wilderness succeeded. He lived His life on earth by the Word of God. The first temptation was not successful, and we read, the devil kept on going. Important for you to know, there'll be victories this side of glory and sin and temptation, and we can't coast off of yesterday's victories. The battle rages on. Here we see this in verses 5 through 7. The second temptation. This temptation has to do with worldly power, the lust of the eyes and worldly power. Look at verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." Now, Satan is referred to elsewhere in, in Scripture in John chapter 12, verse 31, as the ruler of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God, lowercase God, of this age. So there's a sense, even as we sang in our opening hymn this morning, his power is real, greater than your power as a human being. We have to keep in mind when we think about his power. He's on a leash. He roams, but the Lord reigns. He's the lowercase God. There is a capital G God that he even submits to. The point of this temptation here, though, is the devil's trying to get Jesus to point his eyes to worldly power and worldly glory, the glories of the kingdom of the present world. In other words, Satan, he's kind of offering something to Jesus that he's already been promised. Christ came to bring the kingdom of God 
down to earth, an everlasting kingdom. Satan offering the present kingdoms of the world is overlooking the, the reality right there, what Jesus has been offered already. He came for an everlasting kingdom, far greater than the kingdoms of this present world. As the Son of God, Jesus was already on the path to receiving that glory, to receiving that promise. He would be crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords, yet that glory would come through suffering, for suffering and then glory, through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. He'd be crowned the King of kings. What Satan was offering Him was glory without suffering. In other words, bypass the will of God. Bypass His will and His pan. Get the glory now and apart from the will of God. He was offering him a crown without a cross. Sounds similar to Satan's temptation of Adam. Glory and power apart from God. You don't need God. Just be independent. Find glory and power on your own. Satan offers a substitute a shortcut, something that's faster achieved, that promises no pain, glory apart from God, yet it was all a fake and a lie. You see, the price to pay for this is to worship and serve Satan. Look, look at how Jesus responds in verse 8. Again, he begins with, it is written, and he quotes again from the book of, book of Deuteronomy, this time in Chapter 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. The temptation was worldly power if Jesus would worship Satan. And the answer from Jesus, it is written, was an emphatic no. He quoted Scripture as he refused to worship Satan. Here's the score, two to zero. Two, Jesus Zero, Satan. Satan does not retreat, yet he did not stop again. Important for us to recognize. Look at this third temptation in verse, now verses 9 through 13. This temptation has to do with the pride of life. The pride of life. Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, so out of the wilderness, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which was the highest point on the temple. And again, he calls into question if Jesus really is the Son of God, saying in verse 9, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. That sounds like an interesting temptation. Food to eat, you know, glory, the, the kingdoms of the world, but jumping off the top of the building, what's going on here? Like, what is tempting about that? Well, we know from the context, Jesus is being tempted by Satan to test God. So, so prove that God is with you. Prove that He is for you. If you really are the Son of God, jump from the pinnacle of the temple. God will catch you. He'll protect you. Now, consider that the two other temptations, they took place in the wilderness. So, presumably nobody around. Coming here to Jerusalem, presumably a busy place. So, I think this implies the idea, you jump off here, it will be a public spectacle. I think it's very similar to that temptation. Come get glory now without suffering. Jump off the top of the temple. People look up, what is going, who is that jumping? Okay, angels caught him. Who is this guy? And boom, immediately, no suffering, public following. A shortcut to glory, I think, is what's being offered here. But we know clearly it's a testing of God. Taking it even further, Satan himself quotes Scripture. 
He's the one who now says in verse 10, for it is written. Jesus kept quoting Scripture, so Satan joins in and quotes Scripture to twist it and use it against Jesus. Again, he's quoting a psalm here, and an interesting note, Satan knows Scripture. Christian, how well do you know Scripture? If you're going to face temptation from him, he knows Scripture. He loves to twist Scripture to, to, to make things seem like, oh, this is good, and this is, this is right, and I can take Scripture, and it makes much of me. It makes much of what I want. It's how we get heresy. It's how we get false gospels. It's how we get false gospels that pervade throughout this country, the idea of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that, that Jesus just wants you to have physical health and lots of money and a big house, and if you just do the right things, Jesus is going to give you all of the American dream that you want. That's not the gospel. That's Satan taking the gospel and twisting it for selfish human purposes. Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12 here. And in this psalm, in the context, God promised King David divine protection. The promise, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He twists Scripture. He twists God's promise to say, if God's going to keep his promise, go ahead and jump. You have nothing to worry about. If he would protect David and promise generally Israel, how much more will he protect you if you are the Son of God? But Jesus knew this would not be trusting God. It would be testing God. And Jesus again answers with Scripture, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16, there in verse 12. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus displays a, a principle here, a beautiful principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. <laughs> Satan's twisting. He's like, no, that's not what God said. Very explicitly, the Lord said, don't put the Lord your God to a test. What you're trying to tempt me to is to test God. And I wonder how often Scripture gets twisted in, in your life. And you think, well, if God's really for me, well, he's going to answer this prayer I have for me to get a job. And if God doesn't give me this job I prayed for and went in and prepared so hard for it to interview and had my small group praying for me, if I don't get it, well, then somehow I'm going to think God doesn't love me. What's putting God to the test? I remember years ago when I served as a chaplain for a football team, uh, we went up and played a really difficult game on the mountain against Appalachian State University. It was a big game. I was so excited to be there. did the pregame chapel. We went up there and we lost in the last minute of the game against Appalachian State. And on the bus ride home, one of the players, and I'm not sure if he was a believer or not, he looks at me and he says, why would God let this happen? We, we prayed so much for this win. And I said to him kindly, I said, well, do you think Appalachian players and coaches were praying too? Well, who's God going to answer? And if God just gave wins based on prayers, well, we'd have Notre Dame and Liberty in the national championship every year. So you don't have to be godly to win a game. It's kind of putting God to the test. Jesus quoted Scripture to point to the truth. Now, the time for Jesus to commit his life into the hands of God and trust his divine protection, it was coming. We're getting there soon in the Gospel of Luke. It hadn't come yet. That time would come when Jesus willingly went to the cross. He would commit his life 
into the hands of the Lord as he went there to the cross to suffer and die. You know, the last words recorded of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, verse 46, his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, God trusted. Jesus trusted God the Father. He trusted his divine protection. He was a human being who went before you and I into death. I don't know what it's like to die. You're here this morning. You don't know what it's like to die, but Jesus does because he went before us into death. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, we too can trust God's divine protection. Jesus was truly man, he was tempted by the devil, and he was truly God and revealed in this story and that he remained steadfast in obedience to God. And look at how the scene ends there in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The battle was over. The war was not. Satan retreats. He will show up again time and time throughout the ministry of Jesus, which gives us some insight into our present situation as Christians. Christ has already conquered Satan at the cross. We've already been saved, forgiven of our sins. Jesus came and died on the cross. This whole story shows he's the only one qualified to be a substitute. We see in his perfect life, perfect righteousness, perfect obedience. A sinful person couldn't die to save a sinner. But Jesus Christ is the righteous one, perfectly obedient, perfectly obeyed God's law and honored him in all that he did, showing that he was qualified, the only one qualified to be the substitute, meaning to to stand in our place, to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin against God by dying on the cross, taking the penalty there in our place, God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. He put our sin to death on the cross. He died. He was physically buried. He was truly man, so he was put into a grave. That was a real death, lifeless corpse laying there in the grave on a Saturday. But look out for Sunday morning. Jesus got up from the dead, proving that he is who he said he was, truly God and truly man, that his payment for sin is acceptable to a holy God, the only offering acceptable to offer God as payment for our sin against him, calling everyone everywhere of all nations, repent and believe in Jesus. There is forgiveness of sins. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here this morning. I hope you come back next Sunday. We'd love to talk with you more about who Jesus is and what he does, what he has done. You need to know your greatest problem is not temptation. The root of all your problems is sin. And you're born into this world under the condition of being a sinner. You're under the slavery of sin. You commit sins Because of sin in your heart, the condition you were born into in this world, the good news we bring to you this morning, there's a way to be forgiven of your sin against God, set and free from the captivity of sin. It's found only in a person named Jesus. He's the perfect righteous one. If you would repent of your sin, meaning 
turn away, agree with God and what He said in His Word, that your sin is an abomination against a holy God. Agree with God and what He said in His Word. There's no way you could possibly repay God the debt you owe Him for your sin against Him. If rather you would repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for free righteousness, for everlasting life, He will do that in your life right now today. You can get right with God today. The last thing I want you doing is leaving here thinking you just need to try a little harder because that's not what we're professing as Christians. We're the ones who've been set free by God's grace, set free from the bondage of sin. But we're not home yet. We still struggle with sin. And we're coming this morning as Christians to be reminded of the confidence and the power that's found in the cross of Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus. The greatest thing you could do here this morning, if you don't know Jesus, trust in him today. Please talk to someone who brought you this morning. Any pastor will be at the door after. We'd love to talk to you more about that. But you know, Christians also, the same application for you and me. The greatest application we can take from this passage, trust in Jesus. I know that sounds so elementary. It sounds so common. And you may want to know, hey, Dave, give me 10 steps as to how. There's some good application from this. You should know Scripture, and you should quote Scripture, and you should use Scripture. But if you're coming to this primarily to look for an example for how to fight against sin, I think you've missed the main point. That's a good takeaway. I think it's a necessary application and conclusion. But the main point and the main takeaway is not just, hey, how can I follow this example? Jesus is not merely an example to follow. He's a Savior to trust. We think this morning about the help that we have in our times of trouble. Look to Christ as the point of this whole story. Look to who Jesus is and what he's done. Who he is qualified Jesus for what he came to do. We've been set free from sin. The root of all of our problems, of every problem in the world is sin. And Christ came and he's already dealt with that and set us free from sin. The main takeaway, Christ is exalted. Look to him. Trust in him. He was victorious over Satan in a way that you and I are not. We will quote scripture against Satan and the powers of darkness this week, and sadly, we will still fail at times far too often. Jesus is the one who came and paid for our sin. He started off by showing his perfect life and then laying that perfect life down to die the perfect death on the cross. See, sadly, we will give in to temptation until we go on to glory. The call is to look to Christ. I'm on my third child right now of teaching them to drive. It's a terrifying experience for a parent. What <laughs> we want to do. And one of the key things I teach all of my kids, I'm sure you've said this before, maybe even to your spouse, keep your eyes on the road. There's lots of distractions, lots of things to draw your attention away one of the most simple ways to avoid getting in an accident in this crazy driving city, keep your eyes on the road. You know good and well every time you pull up beside somebody who's weaving all over the road, you know what they're doing. They're looking at their phone. They're more interested in their phone than they are driving. They're more interested in what's going on on social media than they are paying attention to what's going on in front of them. Distractions, drawing attention away from the Keep your eyes on the road is the main message of driving. In the same way in temptation for Christians, keep your eyes on Jesus. We are distracted so often. We get consumed with things that we find far more entertaining. Right? Just 
Our phones themselves can be a distraction from keeping our eyes on Jesus. Far too often we fill our minds and our, our hearts with our social media timeline rather than Scripture that points us to Jesus. Far too often we look at ourselves, we look around us, trying to find life around us rather than looking to the source of life found in Jesus. As we travel through this world in our battle with temptation, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews said in Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Look to Jesus and find help in temptation. If we're to persevere through temptation, we must trust in the one who remained perfectly obedient and fully honoring to God. Yes, memorize Scripture. Yes, meditate on Scripture. Yes, as the Puritan said, don't listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the Word of God to yourself. But you know what that does? It's not an end in of itself. It points us to look to Jesus. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The manipulation of Satan's tactics, Jesus faced that. He's not unable to sympathize with the misery that we experience daily in temptation. Look to Jesus. We have a Savior who invites us to draw near to Him and find confidence and hope and grace to endure. And the same Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness dwells inside of every Christian as we travel this side of glory. Look to Jesus for help. Let the Word point you to Jesus. Let your prayers lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let those point you to Jesus. Draw near to Him to find grace and confidence. And we do that now as we come to the Lord's table. Please bow with me as we pray. Father in heaven, our eyes are quick to turn all over the place to ourselves, looking in the mirror, looking to those around us, blaming our circumstances or other people for our trouble and even our sin. Lord, and we're in need of you drawing our eyes to Christ. Drawing our eyes to, eyes to Christ where there is forgiveness for our sins. Drawing our eyes to Christ, the one who has power over our sin, the one who sympathizes with all of our temptations, the one who gives us grace in all of our weakness and in our failures, uh, the one who cleanses our hearts from within of all of our disobedience to God. May we draw near to Jesus. And Lord, we ask you to draw near to us now. Remind us, we ask as we come to the table, of the grace and the mercy and the kindness that you've shown us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.